Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we're covering Egyptian cosmetics. Because we didn't already just have an Egyptian episode a couple weeks ago. (laughs) That one was my favorite, though. (laughs) But before we get into that, just a reminder, we do have social medias, History Explains It All underscore podcast, both for Facebook and Instagram, where we do at least two posts a week, one on archaeology in the news and one in Today in History. Go check them out. We're also about to start, well, by the time you get this goes out, we'll have started posting our own historical photos that we've taken. So <laughs> those will come out. So three times a week by this point. And if you want to contact us, give us your opinions, any of that. History explains all at gmail.com is our email, and we'd love to hear from you. Yay! Yay! <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, Egyptian cosmetics in general, ancient Egyptian cosmetics. I'm so sorry. Let me, let me correct myself. Oh, before we start, uh, who, who, um, suggested this episode wasn't this your mom yes actually Hmm. it was my mother (laughs) my my mom does have some ideas (laughs) (laughs) so before we get into it let's just talk a little bit about the importance of cosmetics because the in ancient egypt it was extremely important yes it was burials People were buried with them. If you, if you look at historical archaeological finds and tombs, women were buried with some of their lipstick, some of their coal, some of their cold creams, all that stuff. Yes, cold creams even existed way back in that time. It was extremely important for both men and women, by the way, were buried with cosmetics, but it was extremely important for them to have it into the afterlife or duat, as it's called in ancient Egypt. Uh, They had it in the afterlife because if you looked good, it supposedly helped with your judgment day, which was extremely important. So death was a major part of ancient Egyptian daily life. That's why when a pharaoh came to the throne, one of the first things he started on was his tomb. Oh, I thought it was just because it would take forever to build. Well, it does take forever to build, but that's because it's so extensive because the afterlife is so extremely important because really the thought was that the life we live on this plane, on this earth, is to prepare oneself for the next life, the afterlife. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So Egyptians did believe that any items that you took with you or were buried with you had the ability to use them in the next life. And looks were important. Beauty was important. So many tombs have been discovered with jars and containers and makeup applicators and all that stuff. And they also included other products like combs and jewelry in these tombs just for this purpose. And they thought that if they bathed and had all their bathroom essentials and their makeup and their wigs in their tomb they could also use them to cross over the plains and that's and reach osiris who would who was the judge 
and it supposedly helped when you were clean and looking good. I think that's a standard even modern today. I mean, it is. We also have to remember that back then, they didn't have things like sunscreen. Well, not modern sunscreen, at least. Not effective sunscreen. Yeah, probably better with it, yeah. It's the kill you part. I mean, it wasn't doing much effect if it was killing you and keeping you from the sun killing you. (laughs) Doesn't exactly balance out. So it was also used for for regular purposes of trying to keep yourself healthy. For example, let's get into coal liner, actually. It was also known as galena because galena was what they used to crush up to make the coal liner. And then sometimes they would mix it with malachite powder, actually. Not a good stone to mix it with. And they not, huh? Go ahead. No, no, it's not. You're mixing lead and copper together. Yes. Which is funny because speaking of galena, I have a piece of galena jewelry that I bought from a vendor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, it's really pretty. I like wearing it, but he's like, okay, so just be really careful. Don't let it touch your skin because it's blood. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. And then the malachite. And actually I have a piece of jewelry with malachite and lapis lazuli that you got me. Hmm. And it's in an onk, I believe. It's a beautiful onk and I absolutely love it. You're welcome. I do love it. I really do. I actually don't wear it to work too much because I'm afraid I'll destroy it with all the things and machines going on around. But they would crush the galena and the malachite powder and they would mix them and it would actually be used. Of course, it's there to dress up the eyes. One, sometimes they would mix it and use it as eyeliner. Sometimes they would just use the malachite as an eyeshadow with the coal, the galena coal liner as liner of course and what this would do it would it was actually used to protect the eyes from sun and sunburn so your eyelids it protected them from all that sunburn because again it's ancient egypt there's not a lot protecting you from that sun not a lot not in in comparison to what we have today and so malachite as an eyeshadow would do the same thing and it also had the effect of making one's eyes appear larger which i guess was a beauty standard they had back then oh it's a beauty standard today too there's different ways of where to place certain shades of eyeshadow and how to blend it in to make the eyes look bigger or you know if you add white into it i mean all you gotta do is beauty guru videos on youtube uh, I I play with makeup a lot. <laughs> I think we both. Oh well, I used to. I don't really do it much anymore. But plus, it it's really just color theory anyway. You're just putting it on your face, and your face is a blank canvas. Sure, I'm not sure I call it blank, but okay. And in order to apply the liner and the eyeshadow, they would either use ivory wood or a metal stick, actually. Don't ask me. I think it's one of the weirdest things I've ever heard. But if you, we'll have some links to some pictures of these. You'll you'll see some artifacts that were found in tombs that they used to apply their their makeup. 
Oh, I'll get in that to a later section. We cover pallets and containers. Oh, I'm sure you will. But also, while it was also used as eyeliner or eyeshadow, it was also used, Galena or Colt, was also used in your brows, with darkening your brows, and your eyelashes, kind of like what we do with mascara today. Sure, you can have it in a liquid form and turn it into eyeliner or have it in powder form and use it as brow pencils. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe a brow powder. Or, or a filler of some kind. Yeah. But basically, you could mix oils or fat, animal fat with it to turn it into that liner. And coal would not only protect the eyes from the sun and being sunburnt, it also had an effect of repelling flies and it would keep infections at bay. Oh, I thought that's what the honey was used for. It, it did both. Both of those did that. I mean, honey is known as an antiseptic, so. True, I was thinking more of Peppy's Honey Slaves, but that works too. <laughs> oh my God. Shall we go back to the beginning of this episode? I mean, not this episode, but this podcast, or are we referring to the Horrible Histories episode? You know, both. Why not? It's always a good time when you mention horrible histories. What can I say? I mean, we have very few of those times because it's horrible histories and it's amazing. So not only did they apply coal liner to their face, but they also used rouge on the lips as well as the cheeks, which was actually made out of red ochre. And of course, this in particular, the, the red ochre rouge was actually a symbol of status. Unlike the coal eyeliner, coal was basically for everybody. Everybody basically had access. The rouge, however, was a status symbol. So if you basically had like a blush or a red lip on, not sure why you would want to do red ochre. Once again, not exactly the most healthy, but this is what they did. But again, they also didn't know the majority of the information that we know about the health of the metals and the stones that we're talking about. By the way, as I said, women weren't the only one to wear makeup. Men did wear makeup. And it wasn't only for beauty reasons. It was for those health benefits of keeping flies away, repelling infection, making sure your eyes don't get burnt by the sun. And it was also a way for them to try attempt to copy the gods. A lot of people believe that the gods, if you look at pictures of Bast, Sekhmet, Isis, Nephthys, Osiris, Set, all these gods and goddesses, they had their eyes done and their makeup done. So that was a big part of it as well. Supposedly you became closer to the gods. Yeah, I feel like you're gonna, <laughs> once I get into the makeup section, you just pretty much hit all the big points. So we'll see how that goes. I what? <laughs> I said, when I get down to the makeup section, you've already hit all my big points. So we'll see how much I, information I have left to tell you. Well, I mean, you can always repeat. <laughs> just emphasize it a little more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, next up on Egyptian makeup, the probably... I don't know if I, I, probably the most important, but maybe second in terms of dressing up like the gods, wigs. Oh, yeah. Wigs are very important to ancient Egypt and were quite popular throughout the entirety of ancient Egypt. 
And the actually the earliest known wig that's been found dates back to 3000 BC. And it's been found in, intact. In Egypt? Yeah. Well, that doesn't surprise me. The intact part doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's so arid and dry over there that I can't imagine it falling apart, especially if it was found in a tomb, I'm assuming. Tomb? tomb? I can find a lot of information on that specifically, but yeah, I would assume so, yes. Assuming tomb, sealed off, great preservation as it's sealed off with the mummification process as well. Yeah, I can see why it didn't fall apart. Mm-hmm. Well, surprisingly, there's a lot of tombs. I'm sorry, there's a lot of wigs that have been found in a lot of tombs. And also, depending on who you were, you had a lot of wigs. Well, I mean, especially if you were part of the wealthy, aka the pharaoh and his wife. Or any of their family members, anything like that. Just if you had multiple wigs, you were buried with your multiple wigs anyway. So there's that. And what's also interesting is we found a lot of wigs. They're also found in fairly good condition to begin with. Many historical museums in the world are going to have at least a couple of these Egyptian wigs and the more well-known the museum than probably the more wigs they have, especially if you're in and around Egypt, I'm sure. And according to one of my sources, the wigs were typically made from sheep wool, vegetable fiber, like linen, animal hair, or human hair that's been then designed and then stiffened with beeswax. And of course, the goal was to have as most the most realistic hairpiece as possible, which is still the thing today too. Typically the base would be made of some kind of a fiber netting and then strands of plant fiber, hair, flax, or felt were woven into or attached to the netting. And then they would often flare out from the head, creating a very large and full style hairpiece that also gave them protection from the sun too, because it's not like they went around wearing hats. Well, it also doesn't sound very comfortable against one's bare head. Oh, no. Uh, well, there's that. But the farther you get into the beauty standards of Egyptian wigs, I can't imagine it's anywhere at all comfortable. I mean, you're, they did shave their heads majorly. Sure. But that's not where I was going with that. The wigs get, think of Georgian wigs. And I actually make a note uh, in my notes, like in the next couple sentences, about Georgian wigs in relation to Egyptian wigs. It sounds terrifying. Yeah, pretty much. So wigs first came into popularity and were only used by the royals and those of very high status. And it wasn't until the rise of Queen Nefertiti that wigs also began to be used by the common people. As Lauren just said, people would shave their heads, mostly because they felt, uh, in addition to the makeup and looking like the gods, they also believed that being clean shaven all over was also a being pure, which would also give you one step closer to being uh, with the gods. And royal wigs in particular were often very helmet-like because they were very well stiffened with beeswax. And sometimes it apparently would be quite heavy. So later on, it is recorded that one of the queens, Queen Isenkep, I think is how you pronounce it, her wig was so massive and so heavy 
and it's on display in Cairo, I believe. Yes. Um, that uh, it's recorded that she needed help to stand up with her aides while wearing the wigs. So I'm looking at Georgian wigs piled feet high with random stuff that he used to have in there, the macaroni wigs. <laughs> That's what comes to my mind when I think of really heavy wigs. So, you know what I was remembering? Hmm. I was remembering the Horrible Histories episode with the lady in the Georgian wig and the kid eating the fruit from her hair. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, it, 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 I don't think it was super common, but there were a couple of Georgian wigs where they would landscape stuff in the wigs. It's very fascinating from a fashion faux pas-esque fad standpoint. From a fashion fad standpoint, Georgia wigs are fascinating. I mean... And the amount of... Well, the thing is... The thing ridiculous. Is wigs, the, the thing is, and I think this may have... I don't know that this really had an effect in, in Egyptian times, although we do know that, that there was a strike at one point, a, ma a major, major strike um, between the upper kingdom and lower kingdom. Uh, and I think it was over things like wheat but i do distinctly remember hearing that given the late georgian period into the early 1800s and well like the 1770s or so right until the cusp of the reign of terror the amount of starch much like the beeswax that would mm -hmm. be used to create these massive georgian wigs that only the incredibly uber rich could afford to use was starch that was being taken away from the poor people for them to make their bread, which is why you had bread riots. And people were starving because the nobility was literally stealing their food for fashion. Yeah, I mean, the Georgians weren't very nice about it. It's the rich, they're not usually very nice. Well, the Georgians were great and well known for being, being terrible, terrible people. Yes, yeah. And not being very bright, to be honest. Some of them, but as a whole, just in, in terms of the, the style that lasted through, particularly King George III's reign, not the smartest mm. of choices for a lot of things. And I don't mean by King George. I mean, George was not very smart either, so. No. But jumping out of the Georgians back into the Egyptians, they would also sometimes color their hair. Mm. Yeah, like their um, natural hair, or you're talking about the wig? No, no, this is all strictly wigs. They shave their heads. Well, some of them I know didn't, but majority was, of them did. Well, you didn't shave your head until you hit to adulthood. So girls would have partly shaved heads, and hairs would be in plaits, and boys okay. would have like small ponytails. But eventually, the when you got to a certain age, you would just shave your head. Yeah. Well, lice was also a problem, wasn't it? I mean, lice was a problem throughout much of history, which is why lots of people shave their heads and wear wigs. I'll get into the dyeing of hair in just a tick, but they would also very much adorn the wigs with crystals and a whole bunch of stuff. And you could have typically red, green, or blue colors of crystals and stones. And then they would also have gold caps, gold bands, colored ribbons, and various beads sewn or sewn on like um just like threaded their, their the wig hair through the beads and, and made sometimes the entire thing would be made of beads although on very rare occasions often they would be curled so you would actually have what would be considered a ancient Egyptian curling iron mm 
used to curl the hair and other times they kept it straight. It was kind of, it's fashion now to have curly hair. Now it's fashionable to have straight hair back and forth. And it isn't certain if one or the other in particular were also meant for special occasions, or I would think probably just changed as the styles did as Egypt kept going forward. But as we said, they typically had either very short hair or completely shaved heads. But when the royals and the nobility would appear in public, they would often be wearing wigs. And typically this was for major festivals and events or just any kind of public appearance. The wigs would also be a combination of hair and jewelry. So sometimes you would also have bejeweled headpieces sitting on the wigs too, very, very frequently, particularly for the women. And the jeweled wigs were also stiffened with beeswax. And that particular use of beeswax is attributed to the goddess Hathor, who is the goddess of beauty. And these would also be referred to, well, Hathor herself was also referred to as a sort of goddess sex symbol in ancient Egypt, much like Aphrodite. Basically. Yeah. So during I'm the- I'm not exactly sure why, but- why Hathor was the sex symbol? Well, I mean, I think her, you know how they're all connected to some kind of animal, like Sekhmet is a lioness and Bast is the cat. Yeah. Thaw is, I believe, a hippo or an alligator. I can't remember which one. Hathor was a cow. Oh. If I remember correctly, which I'm going to double check myself, but I'm pretty sure her other form outside of human was that of a cow. I, it, cow just does not normally think when you think ancient Egypt you don't normally think cows well they had a lot of cattle actually they had a lot of sheep I, I would I knew that just you don't think ancient Egypt and cows usually so well so this is according to the Britannica okay Britannica uh her principal animal form was that of a cow but she was also more associated with motherhood than beauty in terms of wigs in terms of wigs beauty but in general terms motherhood so i would not have put hawthor cow and beauty together originally it is what it, what it was so so during the old and middle kingdom the two most popular okay. types of wigs were of short and long hair not obviously medium length and both were typically created in a, in a way to show off the forehead while also covering the ears and back of the neck. By the third intermediate period, which was around 900 BC, wigs had, as I mentioned before with uh, the, the queen, massive and heavy. During the middle kingdom, bulky wigs were quite fashionable, strands draping over the shoulders. By the new kingdom, the wigs were larger and much longer, completely going past the shoulders. Now, according to Cheryl Dolly of Minnesota State University, wigs and hair pieces were quite popular. They were quite elaborate and usually made of human hair, at least for the nobility. Other tools used in beauty rituals that have been found include short, fine tooth combs, hair pins, and a small bronze implement with a pivoting blade thought to be a hair curler. And oh. hmm? I never would have thought of that as a hair curler in my vision as you were describing it. Well, I mean, a very simple curling iron would have been a metal stick that heated up and then curled around the hair like a curling iron. 
that's my visual in my head for that. According to another professor at the Minnesota University, Minnesota State University, uh, Kozumi Takahashi, I think is, <laughs> um, wigs were curled or sometimes made with a succession of different plates or braids. Only queens and noble ladies could wear wigs of long hair that were also separated into three parts, which is also referred to as the goddess hairstyle. They weren't, however, worn by commoners until much, much, much later. During the Old and Middle Kingdom, there were basically two kinds of wig styles, short hair or long hair, as I mentioned. The former were made of small curls arranged in horizontal lines, lapping over each other, resembling roof tiles. Just an interesting way of calling it. The forehead was partially visible and the ears and back of the neck were fully covered. Those small curls were either triangular or square. The hair could be cut straight across the forehead or rounded. Something in standard bangs or we're talking like a bob bang straight across. On the contrary, though, the hair from a long haired wig would hang heavily from the top of the head to the shoulders forming a frame around the face. The hair was slightly waved and occasionally tresses were twisted into spirals. In the New Kingdom, people preferred wigs with several long tassel-ended tails, while shorter and simpler wigs became popular during the um, Armana period, which I guess was later. Much like the beauty standards that Lauren mentioned before, particularly being clean, wigs were also meticulously cared for as with most things the better they're taken care of the longer it lasts i'm i'm sorry i got stuck on the description of roof tiles for a good minute i'll send you a picture in the chat okay because i'm like i i can't unless i'm seeing literal roof tiles like in a braid for i'm really confused i'll send you a, it's more of like the beads were kind of in roof tiles if you're oh. like if you're putting hair in the beads kind of like viking beads uh, i have a picture of what is believed to be uh queen hatshepsut's hair wig i believe Ooh. yes it's all made of lapis lazuli and it literally looks like a helmet very excited to see this now i bet you are <laughs> when they weren't in use wigs would be kept in very special boxes or special chests and often not only the wigs but the chests themselves would be scented with scents that were considered to be holy or sacred or just smell nice. Cinnamon, various flower petals or wood chips. And because of the importance of wigs, particularly to the royalty, as I mentioned before, they would often be buried with them as they believe they needed them in the afterlife. Because if you need them during the life that you're living, you're going to need it in the afterlife. And the more wigs you have, obviously the more money you have and the more you're gonna need them in the afterlife. Now, <laughs> this is a little more of a hmm, controversial topic, I suppose, in, in terms of wigs. More of some people think it really existed. Some people don't. More controversy. But, but supposedly a very favorite decoration for wigs was the wig cone, which there are definitely pictures throughout ancient Egypt of women in particular having this weird cone sitting on top of their head and it actually is believed to have been a wax cone of some kind or a perfumed cone that sat on the top of their head because despite bathing or sorry despite being clean shaven they probably didn't bathe too frequently but they always wanted to make sure that they smelled nice 
which is actually very common throughout much of history. So in the way that now ancient Egypt, as Lauren's going to get and talk about, they did have various ways of perfumes, but it's believed that the head cone was also another way of perfume. And it would sit on your head and you'd wear it throughout the day or during very specific rituals or festivals or where the nobility had to be very nice smelling because you're gonna be around lots of people and it would literally melt with your body heat and keep you smelling nice throughout at least most of the day now we are aware of the head cones because as i mentioned they're found on a lot of different tomb walls but we didn't know if they really existed or if that's what we think that they were the very first one to have survived was unfound until just 2019. Did you catch okay. that part? 2019. Keep yeah. Going. Okay. So according to the depictions, because that's really all we have left, these cones would be carved with decorations and would typically range from amber orange on the top to white on the bottom. And both men and women would use these cones, which is why I think it's more believed that they were used for ritualistic purposes than necessarily an everyday purpose. And they would often be attached to the head, not just on the head, much like a, like if you take a candle and you melt a little of the wax and then you drip the wax onto a plate and then stick the candle on there and it's gonna sort of stick to itself. I, I don't know if it was the kind of same wax, but they would typically tie it like a headband and attach it to their face or attach it to the bottom of their head and then tie it together. They would also sometimes have lotus blossoms attached to it. And typically the smells would be myrrh, frankincense, and then created like a candle that was typically made from fats, resins, and various oils. And as I said, throughout the day, the body heat would cause it to melt and you would have a prolonged perfume. The first known depiction of this head cone actually comes from the time of Queen Hapshatsut and there are in her tomb, there's a scene of banquets and the women in the banquets are actually wearing cones. And in that particular one, it's dancers and musicians during a part of the, the, the banquet. And they were also later associated with using them during funerals. By the third intermediate period, the cones were only associated with worship, no longer for happy or sad times. And when it came to the quality of the wigs, and those that wore them, obviously the better the quality, the more status you had, the more realistic the wig, the more it cost. Royal wigs would only be made from human hair. The middle class would typically wear wigs made of animal hair and sometimes vegetable fibers. And the lower class only wore wigs made of vegetable fibers. So they wore linen wigs typically, or something along those lines. In addition to wigs, Egyptians also made use of hair extensions, which I feel like I didn't know about that. And in 2014, archaeologists, sorry. I'm sorry, but what would they touch the hair extension to if they had no hair? A wig? Well, like I said, you know, some hair extensions to the wig? Hair extensions, probably, I don't know. I don't know specifically. Sometimes I would think that it would it'd be hair extensions made to form a wig if you weren't able to get human hair, or it was hair extensions onto the hair, or maybe if you were someone who was not specifically of age, like 13 and older, but you still had hair because it hadn't been cut off or something. Maybe it was a hair extensions for that to make it look like a wig. 
We don't specifically know yet. We do know that in 2014, archaeologists did find a mummified body in a, a rather large cemetery dating to 3,300 years ago with a hairpiece that was also made from 70 different hair extensions. 70 different hair extensions? 70 different hair pieces to make this one hair piece. How in the world does that work? Well, if you take so many strains of hair to make one part, then you can three different, different hair pieces to make one. Got it. Yes. So weird. Yeah. Well, there's pictures. I'll send them to you. Uh, the mummy was also found in the city of Armana, and according to Jolon Boss, he was the head archaeologist, the hairdo was actually likely styled after death, so it is more of a funeral hairpiece, and then held in place using animal fats. So I did just send you some links in the chat about, uh, with some actual wigs. You'll like the last one I sent you. Ooh. 19th dynasty made of precious stones i mean it is made of it looks like lapis i think it's lapis carnelian malachite or gold definitely gold in there there's gold in there maybe some onyx for the snake or wajet maybe i i'm pretty sure that's the depiction of wajet uh that also could be red ochre i would suspect more carnelian and looks like maybe turquoise in there instead of, I mean, I think there's some malachite in the wig, but like if we're looking at the snake itself, it looks a little bit like there's turquoise in between whatever the redstone is, whether it be carnelian or not, but uh, carnelian, it looks like a little bit of turquoise carnelian. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of, and I'll get to that literally in the next section, just after wigs. Uh, some of the, the major stones that were used, particularly more so in jewelry than anything else, lapis lazuli, malachite, turquoise, carnelian, onyx, and gold. We'll go gold to metal, but... I'm pretty yeah. sure that's what this wig or headpiece, whatever you want to call it, is made out of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of hair products, staying on wigs for just another second, um, there is very long time evidence that ancient Egyptians, like many people throughout history were also looking for ways to keep a youthful appearance and hiding their gray hair, which reminds me, I'm going to dye my hair in a few days. And ancient Egypt, henna was typically used for making lots of things, as Lauren also talked about earlier, nails and lip color and uh, face makeup, but it was also used as a hair dye. And some data actually suggests that, that henna, as a hair dye specifically, dates as far back as 3400 BC in terms of use. So it's been used for an incredibly long time. And some tombs of pharaohs will actually depict people on the walls with red hair, such as that of, and I'm gonna butcher this, Hanutamet, who uh, was a pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. And though black hair was considered to be best, sometimes they would also have different colors in terms of wig colors, at the least, reds, um, Hepshepsut, no, is it Hepshepsut or Nefertiti, uh, would sometimes sport a dark blue head headpiece, much probably like the lapis lazuli one. And apparently, on very rare occasions, you may come across a blonde wig, which I've never seen. 
Neither have I. I mean, the dark color was what was more revered back in that day. Well, it was more of a natural color. You didn't have to do anything with it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was much easier and more revered. It was easier to access, easier to... um, and and it was something that the gods had too. If you look at depictions of Isis, she's got dark hair. Well, I think most people back then did have dark hair. It was just the natural hair color, so that's what they preferred. Yeah. And apparently, the ancient Egyptians were also battling battling the long time suffering of hair loss, which is pretty much everybody at one point. And back then, there were apparently many 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 remedies to try to combat hair loss among many other things so would you like to hear some of these potential hair loss recipes absolutely (laughs) no more Um, don't stop now none of these of course work and i would not recommend them as anything actually medicinal they believe that applying the fats from crocodiles ibex snakes geese and hippopotami to your scalp as well as the fats of various large cats and goats would help to prevent hair loss i'm sorry the fats and what else the fats of various animals oh just the fats i thought okay um did you say crocodiles and hippopotami oh yeah well why would you go for the animal and the ibex why would you go for the animal that is Connected to a god. That's exactly why you would do that. I, that's fair enough. But also, you don't want to kill them. Would you naturally wait till they die? I didn't live back then. Can't answer that for you. I know it's a rhetorical question that I really am curious about now, even though I know I can't get an answer. <laughs> no, I can't answer that one for you, unfortunately. But they it, it has been discovered that they did try not just so they, they had the fats and it's not like they would boil it down or anything so that we're aware of but instead of just taking the fat in your hand like you would with say castor or jojoba oil and apply it to your scalp it's believed that they would take leaves of lettuce apply the fat onto the lettuce like an aloe plant onto your head like if you had a sunburn and believe I mean, it had regenerative the, hair growth pop properties. I mean, I guess the cabbage would kind of keep it in place and it kind of curves to your head, I guess. I guess. It was also believed that aromatherapy could help stimulate hair growth. We like aromatherapy even today. Oh, yeah. Um, now, there are some oils out there that can have restorative growth properties. I don't know if they'll give you an entirely full set of hair, but it can stimulate hair growth at the least. And those would be things like jojoba oil or maybe castor oil. They also believe that almond oil and rosemary and fur in terms of essential oils also help to stimulate hair growth. Tea tree oil would probably be similar to that too. And in terms of collecting human hair for the nobility's wigs, there were actually wig manufacturers, which is apparently a bustling profession. And the manufacturers would actually barter with the lower class or common folk who wanted to sell their hair. 
So if you wanted to sell your hair for something, you would go to wig manufacturers and often they would sell their own personal human hair for other various goods as a barter trade. And then the manufacturers would meticulously clean the hair, obviously for lice, and then separate them into different lengths and then create the wigs, add the wax to stiffen it up. And apparently there were even ready-made factories that were just for wigs. So if you were wanting like a boutique, but just for wigs and barbers would make wigs and women also made wigs at this time too. In fact, wig making was considered a respectable profession for women back then. I can see how that would work. It's probably no different than women as hairdressers today. Well, it's also, if, if we think about back to the times, they're once again limited on the jobs you could do as a woman in the time. So I can see how wig making would turn a profit for them. And then also you have uh, wig making and being a priestess to a goddess. Outside of being a mother, yeah. Yeah, motherhood's kind of a given in those times. <laughs> All right. Uh, my next section I've got is on the uses of crystals in makeup and gemstones. Now, there weren't really a whole lot because, as I said, most of the time, gemstones were more used for decor and jewelry. But as Lauren attributed or I mentioned before, malachite was a very popular stone to use makeup even if it didn't do much or wasn't necessarily very good for you to use but it was the form of green eyeshadow that was super very popular aside from the coal that was used for lining your eyes and the shadow was actually called I think it's Uju and in malachite was actually mined from the Sinai mountains and has been mined as far back as at least 3000 BC and traditionally, the powder was mixed with some kind of gum or water that would turn it into a paste. Supposedly, they also believe that malachite, because of its associations with the, some of the gods, it was also a way to help promote spiritual visions. Now, eye makeup, as Lauren also mentioned, was typically put on via carved ivory, wood, or sticks. Uh, or sticks made from metal, sorry, as part of the rituals. And particularly eye makeup was used, as she also said, by most men and women, and were not just for spiritual rituals, but also just general everyday use because of its properties of shielding things from the sun and sun, like, type, like sunscreen stuff. It was a belief at the time that not only was eyeliner and eyeshadow associated with the gods and used to imitate the gods, but that it also was a way to ward off evil. And though not related to crystals specifically, it is important to note that the ancient Egyptians also used makeup as part of their medicinal or magical rituals, which to them, it was kind of the same, the one the same. They didn't have medicine and then magic. It was magic and medicine in one. One of the remedies for burns is really interesting. They would mix together the red ochre that they would usually use for lip and cheek stains, mix it with honey, 
and uh, natron and salt. And this actually had an effect, surprisingly. The lead in the salt, when in contact with the skin, causes the skin to produce nitric oxide, which is also known to help off, uh, fight off bacteria. But they obviously believe this to be magical, so it also had an effect for them to believe that it um, helped them to prevent from contracting various diseases too. Now, another generally popular use in makeup was lapis lazuli, which funny enough, because it was really more for decoration. Though the green color was preferred in terms of eyeshadow using malachite, lapis was also used by the Cleopatra as her preferred eyeshadow color. So back then, blue would have been a more popular shade. Now, the stone was very highly prized in ancient Egypt, and it actually has reference to the god Ra. Now, Ra was the sun god and is described as having gold flesh, silver bones, and lapis lazuli hair. If you think of the burial mask, or at least part of the sarcophagi for King Tut, he's gold, and then gold and lapis lazuli inlays are made for the wigs on the mask. And this also is because, uh, because lapis also contains pyrite or some kind of copper base, it also symbolizes life, the heavens, and the gods, because pyrite and gold were also very, very important to ancient Egypt. Lapis was so important to ancient Egyptians that whenever they conquered lands, they made a show of demanding that the people they conquered give them all of their minds of lapis lazuli. And for King Tut's mask, the lapis specifically comes from the Sarai Song mine in Afghanistan, and this is the same mine that's been producing lapis lazuli and other gemstones for over 7,000 years. And it's still in use today. That's one long living mine. Yeah, it must be a one really deep one too, I just, I'd imagine. At this point, yeah. Jeez Louise. Oh, I've got on my section on wigs and beauty. Would you like to get into your perfumes? I will. I will get into perfume. I'm going to kind of touch upon some of the things you've already touched upon as well. But there's only so much to talk about before you start to um, repeat things. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Frankincense, myrrh, mastic, pine resin, cinnamon, saffron, juniper, mint, cardamom, and there was so much more that made up the most highly sought after perfume of ancient Egypt known as kaifi. It was extremely soft, sought after as it was known for being pungent and lasting quite a while. However, the majority of the ingredients came from a land known as punt in ancient Egypt. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Punt, Egypt. Uh, do you know anything about it, Melissa? Only what you've told me about Hepshetsuit and her things over in Punt. So we don't actually know what land was Punt to the ancient Egyptians. There's speculation that it's kind of part of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and like Yemen and stuff where, where they are by the Red Sea down there as well as across the Red Sea into uh, parts of Africa, just literally right across. That's speculation because we don't have a literal map saying this is where Punt was. 
and punt what punt was a land of abundance and if you as a pharaoh sent an expedition down to punt and it came back successfully it was successful and they all returned it all returned mm-hmm. then and only then were you considered blessed by the gods you were chosen by the gods because you had a successful expedition to punt because a lot of the times many of the expeditions that went down to punt never returned or they returned half unsuccessfully they didn't have much with them Ooh. so Hatshepsut for example is one of the record one of the recorded successful exp- had one of the recorded successful expeditions to punt one of the reasons she became highly accepted as pharaoh female pharaoh by the way wasn't she one of the first uh yeah kind of so when you have a lot of items that come from punt to make up the most sought after perfume chances are it's rare hard to find you're not going to have a lot of access to it. Okay. So that's, it was impossible to find or get the ingredients, which meant that Kaifi, that, that sought after perfume, was majorly used in the temples to the gods. It was burnt for the gods majorly, rather than being upon somebody's body to make them and perfumes were also extremely important and they were so important that there was even a god dedicated as the god of perfume which was Nefertum he was the god of aromatherapy as well and healing other perfumes were also extremely com- were common not extremely common but there were perfumes that were common that people had access to made out of natural resources that were readily available throughout Egypt. And these would be ground down into a paste that would then be mixed with oils or an animal fat. And it would be quite thick in comparison to what we know today as like a light little spray of perfume. No, that didn't exist. It was kind of oily and seems sounds very unpleasant to me. Other popular perfumes included sassunum, which was made with lily, myrrh, and cinnamon. Uh, cyprinum, made of henna, cardamom, cinnamon, cinnamon, myrrh, and southernwood. And then mendesian, which is made of myrrh and cassia with gums and resins. It, and it was also believed that bad odors would, well, once again, you wanted to present yourself to the gods upon death in an appropriate manner therefore smelling was not the best idea therefore you had to constantly add perfume to yourself and it it was also believed that bad odors would cause disease actually well there is odor causing bacteria even if it's not really causing disease yes nobody likes a smelly person hold on yep no i'm good It was right there. I'm sorry. And there were actually uh, things like cedarwood that was used to make houses and even 
during the mummification process in the mummies themselves to help them with the scent. It's not a pleasant scent. No, death usually is not quite pleasant. Well, I mean, can you imagine the mummification process for that to dry out, for the body to leach itself of all of its liquids? Nope, I'm good. As someone who's fascinated by it, that still sounds so unpleasant, the scent. Oh, I mean, just the smell of decay is just... Yeah, what can I say? Good as we're going to get, right? Oh, it was also actually that women use different perfumes on different parts of the body. Sure, why not? That doesn't surprise me. I mean, nope. If we're just talking about it, uh, for example, Cleopatra, she would use uh, roses and violets in like an oil, like that scent mixed together on her hands. And she supposedly used a mix of oil with honey, cinnamon, iris, hyacinth, and orange blossoms, according to my source, on her feet. Her feet, huh? Yeah, feet. I mean, you're probably sweating pretty bad out there in ancient Egypt with zero air conditioning. That's fair. You probably don't smell your best. Come on. It'd be quite something. <laughs> You don't. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah, that was uh, quite a quite a thing. After perfume come baths, which, by the way, I have to tell you about your statement. I think it was in the wig section where you were talking about them not taking baths often. They took baths every freaking day. Oh, wait. Yes, you are right. They took baths several times a day. Yeah. And they, they also had morning rituals of washing your face. Like they would, they would like three, four times a day, they would be wiping themselves down and cleaning themselves off. It was constant. Yeah. Yep. 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 So people would actually rise in the morning and bathe. And every single house had some type of wash basin. Even the poorest of houses had some type of wash basin. They even, some even also had foot baths. Always yep. a good thing to have. Foot baths are great. Well, like I said, if Cleopatra's putting a specific scent of perfume on her feet, chances are your feet aren't uh, the most pleasant smelling in ancient Egypt. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that. And they would wash their feet, face, and hands before and after every meal. Yes. As well as before bed and after waking up. So they, they wash themselves constantly. And again, you had to present yourself to the gods in a cleanly manner upon your death. Therefore, being clean at all times was a good thing. Now, did it help them smell pleasant? I'm not really sure they had the tools like we have today to do that. I don't think they did in particular. Uh, if you were of the wealthy sort and you had more access to more things to help you smell more pleasant such as using dead sea salts for exfoliation or having a milk bath to make you look beautiful i mean it supposedly helped keep your skin supple i mean just look at a couple other versions of history where 
women bathed in milk. I and mean, there's milk lotion. There's that milk too. Milk is very hydrating. Yes. So imagine put, immersing your entire body in that. If you could afford it, you did it. And if you could afford it, you also would have an entire room dedicated to being your bathroom. Back then, you normally didn't have that availability like we have today. They would have a bathtub in that, like built into the ground. And while the poor did bathe, it wasn't in the most cleanly of places. It was the Nile. And let's just call it what it is. It was dirty. Well, that's just kind of standard for a lot of cultures Rivers? too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you bathe in a lot of the access of the water you have access to versus. Well, it's not, it's that what? too, but also a lot of these ancient bathing sites, even like Lourdes or the, the big one in India, mm-hmm. they're sacred sites. So you also want to bathe in them anyway, even if it's not a healthy thing to do. Yes. So it's less of ridiculously clean and more of am I religiously clean in that sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. I haven't had that said or that wasn't in a source of mine, but you wanted to be clean. It wouldn't surprise me though if they had locations like that because a lot of cultures in history have. Yes. They did have soap. But it was made of ash and clay. So they didn't well, that well to glycerin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it also didn't really make you smell good. So they would sometimes add like an essential oil, like in the aromatherapy to the soap. And if you could afford that. No, aromatherapy, not aroma prime, right? No comment. <laughs> also, if one had a skin disease, they were meant to make a mixture of animal fat, vegetable oil, vegetable oil, blah, 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 and salt in order to bathe themselves. That was another form of cleaning themselves. And another one was to use natron. Um, the, the, the very last one before natron, isn't that not similar to say an oatmeal bath if you've got poison ivy or oak or something? I mean, I guess, but it's, animal fat vegetable oil and salt i'm not sure how that's going to really help soothe anything um salt feels like it would burn sure vegetable oil i mean is just an occlusive kind of barrier and some oils can make you burn more in the sun you just it, it, why do you think we use it on 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 foods it's edible and it helps the baking process makes it cook faster because oil is like a conductor it can be yep so if you go out in the sun and you just put oil on yourself hence tanning oil for example you're just gonna burn it doesn't seem very pleasant when you've already got a skin disease but that's just me but that's everything i have on baths so we're going into lotions lotions is that what you have yeah oh body care yeah lotions and oils which i kind of spoke on in the past a little bit you know just a lot of intersecting things are these the last two sections i don't yes i got the last two sections all right 
Yes. So as she's obviously mentioned, um, <laughs> oils like and said, perfumes are very important. When it comes to cosmetics and body care, there's a lot of intersecting things because they would, they use things, they use the same things in different parts of the care routine. And nearly every day, depending on what it was. And who you were. Well, that too. So as we mentioned, they were very clean. They also put a major emphasis on being hydrated, which of course makes sense because it's a very hot arid area and you could very easily get sunburned. So yeah, of course you want to stay moisturized. And they also were, as we mentioned before, very keen on a youthful appearance. So they were very much about wrinkle-free creams and wrinkle-free was a priority, which of course, no surprise there. That's just most of human history. And this apparently was also uh, uh, often done by using aloe, myrrh, and frankincense. And that the, the mixture that they used also had anti-inflammatory properties too. The moisturizers themselves were often used typically using castor oil, sesame oil, and moringa oil. I think it's moringa, moringa. And the, some of the most commonly used oils in general were castor, linseed, olive, ben oil, balanos oil, and sesame oil. There were different, as she mentioned in the perfumes, there would have been different smells also associated with different gods. Lilies, frankincense, irises, sandalwood, etc. would be associated with specific gods. Also, other smells such as peppermint, thyme, rose, almond, cedar, and other essential oils would also be associated with specific gods. So you would use the different smells and applications based off of what you were doing. And because essential oils were also used in everyday life, they were also part of deodorants as well. And everyone from every class was very commonly using deodorants and moisturizers. It, everyone wanted to stay clean and smell fresh. And it's believed that they would also, these moisturizers and deodorants would also be given in place of wages to the working people of the lower class. Instead of getting paid so you can go buy groceries, you're getting paid in perfume and oils. Don't see that as an actually a fair trade-off, but hey. In addition to these, the oils would also be used in burials, as we also mentioned with the mummification process. And after it was completely dehydrated, it would be covered in animal fat, spices, and other holy oils. The linens that were used to wrap the body were also often treated with such oils, particularly cedar, camphor, cassia, and myrrh. And my last section on today is, uh, are the cosmetic containers, which are actually really, really interesting. So cosmetic containers from ancient Egypt have been found in many, 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 many tombs because much like wigs, you're going to have a lot because it's an everyday significance to the life of the ancient Egyptians. So you're gonna find a lot of cosmetic containers and a lot of wig containers. Now, the biggest difference between nobility and common folk when it came to makeup were the containers. The bigger and more elaborate, the more money you had to spend, of course. The poor often typically used clay pots and wooden sticks as applicators, and the upper class had access to ivory, metal sticks, and would often keep a variety of instruments and very elaborate boxes, often inlaid with not just precious stones, but also ivory. And they are really nice looking containers too. 
And they would also contain not just applicators, but also pallets in various jars. And so you'd have a lip care container, um, a blush palette. Uh, you would have a palette where you would actually dab out the stuff. Sometimes you'd have grinders in there so you can make your own. It, there was They could get quite elaborate. I have a question. Yeah. Did you mention alabaster? Yeah. Just, I'm curious because alabaster was a highly sought after piece of material or stone that I've seen a few, I, I, in, in some museums, I've seen a few containers made out of alabaster and it's, I find it interesting that it's not really mentioned in the histories unless you found more on it. I found none. That's fascinating because alabaster is, if I remember my history correctly from what I learned, alabaster was a highly sought after piece. And I would think that some of the cosmetic jars or containers would have been made out of alabaster. Possibly. I literally not found, I mean, I didn't find a whole lot. You're going to do a little bit of quick research while you keep going and find out. Uh, the earliest known makeup palettes in terms of ones that also contain makeup date back to even like the, the very, very beginnings of ancient Egypt as in 5000 BC. So very, very, very old. And back then, earliest ones would have been rectangular in shape. And as the dynasties progressed, they became more round in shape. And actually a really great find was from the tomb of King Narmer and his particular makeup palette. And on the palette itself is carved the king while he's smiting the enemies of Egypt, all the while uniting upper and lower Egypt. The palette also had the added benefit, which was a very uncommon, to be able to grind the stones into powder. So it was a mix of a grinder and your makeup palette in one. It's really interesting. And over time, interestingly enough, I did not expect it to go this way. The round palettes, so it went from rectangular to round palettes. The round palettes then eventually gave way to fish-shaped palettes and tilapia being the favorite fish shape. So I went looking mm -hmm. on the web in, on the webs mm -hmm. for <laughs> for alabaster containers for makeup ancient Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. And I found one that you can it you shouldn't buy it, and I'm not going to give the website. But ancient Egyptian extremely fine alabaster coal container, that's what it's titled. So I think they did have them. They're just hard to find because it's alabaster, which was rare. Mm. But you can buy it. It's over two grand for a tiny coal container. Two grand. Yeah, selling antiquities is a messy thing. Yeah, I'm not going to get into detail about that because that's just not a fight I'm willing to have on this uh, lovely podcast we have. Mm -hmm. But if you, there's also an alabaster container or cosmetic jar, as they say, at the Met Museum. Sure, why not? Yeah, so I can send you the link to this particular one. It's, um, they say it's circa New Kingdom, so 1991 to 1450 BCE. And there, it, it, is, an, it is an alabaster cosmetics jar, and it's from Upper Egypt, which, if you know anything about Egypt, the lower half was the upper and the northern half was the lower. 
It's the way the Nile flows. So this is probably from somewhere it's saying around Thebes, pretty far south. And it also has a applicator with it. So I'll, I'll share the link to you. Sure. So I'm, I'm surprised that there's not much information. Well, if it's not something that survives very much, then maybe it's not something that is often known. Yes, but I would think that there would be, since, you know, there are a few that have been found in tombs, you'd think it would be mentioned at least somewhere. Uh, I mean, like I said, I didn't find a whole lot on containers and all this stuff outside of the wigs, which was the most I could find. So it... I just think it's fascinating, but that's just me. But then again, this is what I studied, like, this is my area <laughs> right? When, when we talk about it. So that's why I'm like, Alabaster, hmm, I would mm-hmm. think it would have been mentioned. But maybe that's just, again, me. But it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, I've just got a few points left and then I'm done. All right. So going back to funny and odd-shaped fish palettes for makeup. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, they did have weird-shaped palettes. Yeah. And most of, by, by the latter portion of ancient Egypt, yeah, fish, and particularly tilapia. And apparently tilapia was a symbol of resurrection and new life. And then apparently, I did not find a picture of it, but my sources mentioned that eventually the fish palette shaped went out of favor. And baboon-shaped makeup palettes came into favor. But I couldn't find any pictures. Well, now I'm sad. Well, you could look it up while I'm continuing. Now, uh, makeup jars that were for, obviously, the upper class people could afford them were made from glass, decorated with precious stones, and made also of calcite. I'm sorry, they were made from glass and often decorated with precious stones, but also could be made from precious stones calcite or gold and the palettes typically that were used for crushing ingredients in powder would have also been carved particularly for those owned by women would show young women in the carvings or queens and you could also have these grinding palettes in the shapes of animals or even goddesses and according to one of my sources the symbolism of grinding makeup on an animal palette might signify that the wearer had special abilities to overcome that creature's power i'm not sure about that but it sounded interesting not sure i believe that either but well i think it's up there with the let's eat this part of like let's eat a bear or a lion's heart and we'll gain the power of a bear or lion sure i'm sure you will uh that's all i've got you got anything else uh, no, no, I mean, we pretty much covered it all. I did find another alabaster cosmetic jar, Egyptian one from middle period, middle kingdom. Um, and text them to me because I can't access it through the chat. Okay. I will text them to you, but we'll close this out really quick before I text you anything. So. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think that'll do for this episode of History <laughs> Explains It All. How about you? How do you feel? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. It didn't go for an hour and a half this time. 
<laughs> I mean, we got through that pretty quick, but that's still pretty packed with info. Oh, yeah. So that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we trek through history to explain it all. <laughs> Bye. Bye.